Well, praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Let's continue our worship this morning. If you'd turn with me to the book of Acts and the 12th chapter. Acts chapter 12, and the basis for our time this morning is going to be verse 2. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is God's word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And we worship you congregationally this morning for that very truth, the good news of the gospel of salvation and reconciliation to you by grace alone. So we just uh, continue our worship this morning through the reading and preaching of your holy word. And we pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you're with us last week, you can remember we looked at what happens when a believer or an unbeliever dies. We based our message on verse 23 where Luke wrote of King Herod Agrippa I, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Uh, Together we heard of what that moment, that very moment King Herod took his last breath on earth looked like. That very moment Herod departed from this earth and entered into eternity. An eternity which began in Hades, a place of torment and agony and anguish, a judgment that was pronounced upon Herod the very moment he entered into life on this earth, the moment He was born into this corrupted and cursed earth, having inherited a sin nature from his great, great, uh, however many great grandfather, uh, Adam. Herod, just like every other unbeliever uh, throughout time, went immediately into Hades, or this temporary holding place for unredeemed souls, where he and all other unbelievers are currently now, or Uh, they're they're actually awaiting their judgment before the great white throne where they will be sentenced to an eternity in the lake of fire or Gehenna or hell without any possibility of repentance. No second chances, no chance of release. That was King Herod. That is the fate of every unbeliever who has ever died or will die Uh, throughout the history of time, throughout all time. And we said last week that unbelievers should be terrified of this reality. They should be petrified. They should be panicked. They should be in borderline despair at the thought of spending an eternity separated from the love of their creator. That's the only logical reaction when confronted by the many words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself surrounding judgment of unbelievers. It's the only logical response. Now, this morning, we have a much lighter, much more hopeful topic to consider. Instead of the eternal death and eternal torment, eternal suffering and punishment of those who refuse to bend the knee to Christ as Lord in this life, we get to look at the eternal life of those who do believe. We get to look at the eternity of those who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ who died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, who was buried and who was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Together this morning, we get to look at the, that very moment when James' head was cut off and separated from his body, that, that very moment when James took his final breath, that very moment when his heart beat its last beat or pumped its last beat, that very moment when he went from life in this world to eternal life in the next, the life, life, 
eternal life which will be experienced by every believer here this morning. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, this is for you. Okay, this is what is to come. This is what's coming your way. This is what you have to look forward to. And rather than fearing this reality or being terrified or in borderline despair over the moment you pass from this life to the next, my hope today is that you will long for this moment, that you will crave this moment, that you will yearn for that moment of your physical death, not like in a suicide cult way. Uh, We're not going to be passing out Kool-Aid at the end of the, the message here. Uh, but through a realistic expectation and joyous anticipation of your physical death, knowing, having assurance of what is to come, knowing that the best days and the best times of your life on this earth aren't even worth comparing to the joy, the everlasting joy and bliss and satisfaction and glory that you will be experiencing in the life to come. It's not even worth comparing knowing that for the believer there is no sting in death. That's the goal for this morning. Just to, just to let you know, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ know what will happen the moment you take your last breath. The moment your heart beats its last beat. And, and to cause us to long for it, perhaps more than we've ever longed for it, before. And just like last week, we're just, I'm just going to tell you what your creator says about it. Okay, This is just what the one who gave you life and currently sustains your life says about your eternal life. I'm just going to tell you what he says. Here's what the author of life says about the life to come. Turn back with me to John chapter 3. Okay, uh, John chapter 3. Remember, Last week, we started our time with what has been called the most famous text in all of the Bible, the gospel in miniature, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. We looked at the dark side of the gospel, okay, and how it applied to the unbeliever, the unsaved, the condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But we're not talking about that this morning. We're going to talk about the other side. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here our Lord says those who believe will not perish. We will not be destroyed for the purpose by which we were created. In fact, we will finally be able to fulfill totally and wholly and perfectly that very purpose because we'll be void of anything that hinders, hinders us from doing so. That's what makes heaven so glorious, that we will, in an unhindered and unrestrained manner, uh, give the praise and the worship to the, our Lord and Savior and God the Father and the Spirit that he so rightly deserves, that he and he alone deserves. Uh, last week, those who perished were no longer had this ability. They no longer had the ability to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They were the dead, remember? They were physically dead. Then they were spiritually dead. You're going to undergo the second death. But we who believe have been made alive together with Christ. We have been given eternal life, Jesus says. Not eternal death, eternal life. We have been saved We have been saved from eternal wrath, eternal judgment, eternal condemnation, and we have been saved to eternal life. And now we can worship him both in this life and the life to come, life forevermore. And when did that salvation occur? Do you know that? It says it on your outline there. But did did you know that? What does it say? Does it say that our eternal life began the moment we believed? Does it say that our salvation, that our deliverance from the wrath of God and his condemnation forever occurred when we chose him? When we prayed that he would come into our hearts? When we stopped doing certain things and started doing certain things? When we became religious? 
when we started going to church? Uh, does it say that we were saved when we stopped sinning as much? No. Our salvation actually occurred from before we were even born. From before the very foundations of the earth. And, and don't take the outline's word for it. Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, and we're going to look at verse 2 and 3. Actually, we're going to look at 3. Start at 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the, blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose us. Who is he? God the Father. In him. Who is him? God the Son. When? Before the foundations of the earth. Before the foundations of the world. Look at those words. Focus on those words. Meditate, just briefly, on those words there. He chose us. He chose us. Us in Him before the foundations of the world. Now, some people get very offended at this. They get very offended at this clear biblical teaching of God choosing those whom He saves. But really, this lies at the foundation of the good news about happens, what happens when we die, about the life to come. This should actually bolster that joyous anticipation of your last moment on earth. This reality should serve to alleviate and relieve any fears that you might currently have concerning your imminent physical death. Why? Because your eternal life is secure in him. Uh, Paul would go on to write, I am sure, I am certain that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, love of Christ Jesus, excuse me, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why I need to stay right here. Love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. If it were the other way around, if, if we chose him, well, that would, it could only mean that we could unchoose him or that we could stop choosing him when it got hard, which, make no mistake, we would stop choosing him. What this would mean is that our eternal destiny would be dependent on us. We don't want that. But thanks be to God. Glory be to God that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And it's always been this way. It's always been this way. Isaiah 45, for the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel, my chosen. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 27 and 29, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because if we chose God, then we would boast. But God chose us. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. Acts 13, And when the Gentiles heard this, 
they begin rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you see that? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We were appointed to eternal life and we were, the only way to do that is that we were appointed to believe. He chose us and by his grace we believe. Okay, there's divine sovereignty and there's human responsibility. Both are at work here um, but we cannot forsake one for the other. He chose us and those who believe in the Son shall not perish but have everlasting life. We are appointed to eternal life. Not eternal death, not the second death as unbelievers will undergo, but eternal life. Life. This should be a, a balm to the weary soul of any true believer. Our salvation has been secured and kept in the sovereign will of the Lord. This is good news. The doctrine of predestination or divine election is one of the greatest doctrines in the Christian faith, a doctrine which Spurgeon uh, said was one of the softest pillows, one of the softest pillows upon which the Christian can lay his head and one of the strongest staffs upon which he may lean in his pilgrimage along this rough road, this rough road of life which leads to our physical death. And as we said last week, uh, believers in Christ are not spared from the consequences of physical death. That's part of living life in a cursed world. We will undergo physical suffering and death. Even the Apostle James wasn't spared from physical death. He had his head cut off uh, for his faith in Christ. There's only one exception to this, and that is the rapture of the church when the Lord comes back in the clouds to call his people home and they're caught up to be with him in the air, just as Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But unless that happens, we will all surely die. We will all expire. We will uh, pass away from a life on this earth. We'll get sick or we'll get killed. We'll be in some kind of accident. We'll be a part of some sort of natural disaster. Or we'll just get old and our bodies will wear out. Our, our bodies will continue to get slower and they'll decay and they'll uh, grow from worse to worse until one morning you wake up at 40 and you're like, what happened here? Like, where did this come from? And why are my, you're starting to look at yourself and seeing these hairs that weren't there before. And then the hair that was there, it's not there. For some of us, that happened a lot faster than others. But we have to remember what Paul said. The outer man is wasting away. We're wasting away. We're all in the stage of decay, in some stage of decay. Even the young men and young women here, you're all closer to physical death than you've ever been. Again, that's just how it is. But the believer can face the reality of death and really the imminency of their own physical demise with confidence, knowing that whatever happens is momentary. It's, it's temporary, right? Uh, for the believer, physical death and the moments leading up to it are just temporary. They're just momentary, momentary. Again, Spurgeon wrote, the very happiest persons I have ever met with have been departing believers. The only people for whom I have ever felt any envy have been dying members of this very church whose hands I have grasped and they're passing away. He says, almost without exception, I have seen, them, I have seen in them holy delight and triumph. And in the exceptions to this exceeding joy, I have seen deep peace exhibited in a calm and deliberate readiness to enter the presence of their God. Peace, calm, Joy, delight, triumph. This is the death of a believer. It's the exact opposite of an unbeliever. Think about James here for a minute, okay? Just think about James. He, he's brought out of his holding cell by some of Herod's soldiers, and he's, you know, he's brought out likely before a, a large crowd of his own countrymen and 
surely before the religious authority who hated Jesus Christ. He knows he's about to be put to death. He knows what's coming. So, so think of that moment when he's led out into this platform, okay? Think of that moment when he looks over at the guard and he sees that sword or that dagger sheathed, okay? Think of that moment when that sword or that dagger is brought out and, and put to his neck, okay? And, and his, his, he knows his head's about to be sawed off or cut off. I mean, sure, it wasn't comfortable by any means. It's not like we should have, you know, strive to have our heads lopped off. We're not called to have some sick fascination or preoccupation with the thought of our own death here, but we can have confidence when that moment comes, right? Think about it. James was an apostle. He, he was with Jesus all the time. He was with Jesus. He was with John and Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. Jesus who says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living And that's right, there they were. I can see them. James knew that Jesus had the power to raise the dead because he saw the resurrected Christ with his own eyes. Plus, as we read last week, Jesus told him, do not fear those who can kill the body, James. Do not fear them who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. At this moment, James could sing along with the hymnist, safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast. Thereby his love overshaded, sweetly my soul shall rest. My soul shall rest no matter what they do to me. His eternal life was safe because he was chosen in him before the foundations of the world. He knew it. And the same can be said for all of us, all believers here in Christ this morning. We can take these words just as personally as James did. We don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear those who threaten us with death. Do not fear them. And this is becoming an increasingly po- increasing possibility with every passing day in this country. We just heard about this LGBTQ persecution up in Canada. They will come. They're rabid. It's like, a, it's like they're militant. Do not be surprised, but do not be afraid. Be confident. On the contrary, we do not fear death, but we can face death confidently, knowing that our everlasting souls are safe in the arms of Jesus. We're safe. Which brings us to point number three, uh, the intermediate state. This is where things get good for the believer. Okay, this is where things get really good really good for the believer in Christ because it's at that very moment. It's at that very moment where we will not only uh, be in Christ and have the spirit of Christ dwelling on the inside of us, but it's at that moment that we will be with Christ. We will be with Christ. Okay, that's what Paul told the church at Philippi. Turn there with me. Uh, Philippians chapter 1. I want you to see this in your own Bible. Oh, Sorry, Noel, I drank your water there. How you, how you feeling this morning? Well, I'm not afraid either way. All right. Yeah. This is what Paul told the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 21. says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. Now, be honest with me. How many people that you know of, even in the church today in America, have this mentality here? Mm-hmm. To die, gain? You know, I know a lot of people who, who wouldn't say to die is gain, at least not yet. I mean, we've got graduations, we've got weddings, we've got families to raise, we've got dreams and goals to pursue and accomplish, but not for Paul. That's not what Paul says. Paul says to live Christ, to die, gain. Gain. Because he says to live as Christ, he can genuinely and sincerely say to die is gain. 
He said, I, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. It's a good thing. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better, he says. Far better. Now, I want to point out a couple things there in that verse 23. First of all, he says his desire is to depart. You know, that word for desire is actually the word lust. Lust. Did you know that? Now, while the majority of uses in the scripture are in the negative sense, like the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, here Paul uses it in the positive sense. This is that yearning we talked about, that longing that we talked about earlier, though this yearning described here is not a yearning after something that's sinful, uh, but this is a yearning for something that is holy and righteous and good. Jesus said the same things to his disciple. Uh, same thing to his disciples back in Luke 22. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. He desired it. He longed for it. He yearned for it. Here, Paul is saying he desired to depart or die to reach the end of his physical life, his earthly life. The, the word for depart there is actually the same word they use for the uh, loosing of an anchor or mooring of a ship so it could then depart port and set sail, almost like the ship was being free to set sail. It, it was like a releasing. It's, it's, it's at that moment that we're talking about, that very moment when we die, that we are free. We are free. We're finally free because we are with the one who set us free from the bondage of sin and death. We are with our Lord. We're with our Savior. And Paul says that's where he wanted to be because it was far better. This means it was much more better. Very far better. Beyond better is the expression. It's better because we are with him. We are with the one who gave his life for us. The one who, who lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life so that he could reconcile us to an infinitely holy God by taking our sin upon himself on that cross at Calvary. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for us. And Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with him. Instantly. Just like that, we see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face and we get to be with him forever and ever and ever, our master our Savior, our substitute, the more you read about him in the Gospels, the more you read of his character and his nature and how he interacted with people, the more you long to be with him, right? We love the Lord. And so we can sympathize with the longings of Paul's heart and his soul to go and be with him. And And every true believer knows that's what makes the moment we pass, pass from death to life so wonderful. What makes it so wonderful is not what is there, but who is there. It's not to play golf or have no traffic jams. That's, it's because our Lord is there. Martin Luther said this, I had rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. I had rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. Again, how many people do you know who could say that? Uh, J.C. Ryle said, the heart of a true Christian longs for that blessed day when he will see his master face to face and go out no more. He longs to have done with sinning and repenting and believing and to begin that endless life when he shall see as he is, has been seen and, and sin no more. He has found it sweet to live by faith, and he feels it will be sweeter to live by sight. 
He has found it pleasant to hear of Christ and talk of Christ and read of Christ. How much more pleasant will it be to see Christ with his own eyes and never to leave him anymore? You know, Psalm 116 says this. I love this verse. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. Precious is the death of his saints. Not fearful. Not terrible. Not troublesome. Not surprising. Not grim or bleak or morose. But precious. Precious. Because it's at that very moment we will be with him. We will be with him. Proverbs 14.32 says the wicked will be, you know, the wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Refuge. A believer's refuge is found in our death when we are with our shield, our comfort, our mighty fortress in heaven. The the moment you die, believer, the moment you take your last breath, that, that very moment, quicker than the speed of light, you will be in the presence of your Lord and Savior in heaven. You will be with Christ. Remember as Stephen was being stoned, he cried out to Jesus whom he saw in heaven. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was with Christ the moment that he died physically. To the repentant thief on the cross, Jesus promised truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me. You will be with Christ. When we die, this body that we're carrying around here, it will be buried in the ground or burned in the wreckage or in the wildfire. It will be decomposing at the bottom of the sea or in the bowels of animals or whatever happens to it. But the spirit, the everlasting soul is immediately, instantaneously in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven. Heaven, okay? But like Hades is not the final destination of the unbeliever, so this heaven is not the final resting place of the believer, okay? Uh, Very important to know this when we talk about heaven. Heaven. When you die, you'll you'll be taken to a place called heaven. That's true. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. A third heaven. So, we have the first heaven, which is the atmosphere of the earth, uh, uh, the stuff that's all around us, uh, the sky, uh, the earth's atmosphere. The second heaven is what lies past the earth's atmosphere, okay? The sun and the moon and the stars and the planets, the galaxy, that's the second heaven, the third heaven is one described, the one here described here in 2 Corinthians, this heaven which Paul visited and essentially says, yeah, I'm not going to get into that right now. Yeah, I'm not going to put that in this letter. And this is understandable to me because it's really unexplainable in human terms. If you want to see what an attempted explanation of the third heaven looks like, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. This is one of the best chapters in the Bible, and it will be oh so sweeter uh, when we experience it for ourselves. Instead of, just, but instead of just speculating what heaven will look like or guessing what it will look like or hearing what some little boy who claimed to go there so his parents could sell a lot of books says it looks like, let's just stick with the original source here, okay? Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what John says about it. It says, After this I looked, and behold... A door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There you go. What do you think? I don't know what he's talking about, but what do you think? The big takeaway here is, is in our intermediate state, we will be with Christ. Let's stop focusing on what heaven looks like because we can't explain it anyway. The big takeaway, we will be with Christ. That's heaven. That's the best place for a Christian to be, with Christ. That's why Paul says we would rather be away from the body, away from this temporal tent-like body. He calls it a tent. And at home, at home with the Lord. A Christian is not truly home until a Christian is with the Lord. That's our home. The Bible says that a Christian is a stranger on this earth. We're sojourners. We're aliens. This is not our home, so don't get too comfortable here. Do not love this world. So that's the intermediate state for the believer. Now I want to move on to point number four and, and talk about what's going to happen next. Okay? Now I want to briefly touch upon what will take place between the time of our earthly death and the time when we will receive glorified bodies. Okay, now we don't have time this morning to go into the details of all the events that will take place. A couple of years ago, we did a study on eschatology. We did three sermons where we talked about the rapture of the church, uh, the resurrection of believers, the judgment of believers, the rewards for the believer. We discussed the marriage supper of the Lamb, the seven year tribulation period, the return of Christ to the earth talked about the millennial kingdom, the literal 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And we talked about the battle of Armageddon. And we talked about the eternal state. All those sermons should be on the website there. I'd encourage you to go listen to them, but we just can't go through it all this morning. I'd love to do it, but we can't. I'm seeing I'm running out of time already. Um, what we need to know for this morning is that at some point in the future, we will be given a new body. Okay? A body like Christ's resurrection body. A body fit for eternity. Remember last week, the great white throne judgment. Unbelievers are given a body fit for the, to withstand the eternal torments of hell. Right? Likewise, we will be given a new body fit for the glories of eternity in heaven with our Lord. Uh, Paul wrote to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, actually the the translation is there, our vile body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this glorified body for the believer. He calls it our heavenly dwelling. Okay? He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, this temporary tent, we have a building from God, 
not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about our everlasting souls, which are currently dwelling within this temporal body. These bodies that decay, these bodies that wear out, these bodies that ache and suffer and die. For in this tent, he says, we groan. And we long to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. So he's saying that a body or a soul without a body is naked, right? And that's how we'll be if we die right now. If we die, our soul will be naked. We will be with the Lord. We will be in the presence of the Lord. We will be with Christ, but we will be naked, unclothed. We will not have a body, But he actually goes on in verse 5 to tell of a time when we will be further clothed. We will have a glorious body. He says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. He says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us His spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? A guarantee that our eternity will not be one of a disembodied spirit. Okay? But that we will have a real, tangible resurrection body. And and it's clear from these texts and and Philippians 1 that this is Paul's preference. Okay? Uh, He wanted to be with the Lord, not just in spirit, but in in a glorified body. His next preference was to just die and be with the Lord, even if it's outside of a body, even if uh, he was just his soul. And his last preference, as he said to the Philippians, if necessary, again, not preferable, but necessary, I'll remain in the flesh for your sake. I'll stick around here until he calls me home. Because to Paul, Paul, this body was burdensome. Okay, it was a burn to him. It it was limited in its ability to glorify God the way that God should be glorified. It it was susceptible to disease and to decay and to beatings. It hurts to be given 39 lashes plus one, right? It's not pleasant to be hungry or shipwrecked. So he says, we look forward to being clothed with a heavenly body, uh, not a temporal tent, but a permanent building, which God will give to us. And this heavenly body is not burdensome. It's not limited. In fact, it's glorious. It's glorious because it's imperishable. Uh, The best description of the resurrection body is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 says, What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It, meaning our earthly body, is sown in dishonor. It, meaning our heavenly body, is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And then he says, uh, verse 53, For this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. He says that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what was the body of our Lord like? This is the one we're going to get. We should know what it's like. Well, we know from the scriptures that he's recognizable, right? Mary knew him. The disciples knew him. Uh, John says that as all the disciples were meeting together in a room, even though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them. So apparently we can go through walls, but that doesn't make us ghosts because then he says these bodies can be touched, right? He says to Thomas, touch my hands, feel my side. So we're not ghosts. He then went on to eat some fish 
with the disciples. He walked along the road to Emmaus with some others. He had some bread with them. Then he vanished. Shows us that the body of our Lord is not just, was also not limited by time or space. He could appear at one moment in Jerusalem and the next in Galilee. It's really fascinating to think what these bodies will be like and what our eternity, our eternity will be like in them. But the main characteristic and the main function of these bodies is that they will be built to worship the Lord for all of eternity. They will be built for eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. They're built to last not just for 100 years, not just for 80 years, but forever and ever, which brings us to the final point in our outline. We're going to be just a, just a skosh over, but you're going to want to stick around for this. If not, I understand it'll be on the website, Lord willing. But final point in your outline, we've looked at the uh, believer's salvation, our physical death, our intermediate state, our resurrection or glorified bodies. Now I'd ask you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. We want to hear this, right? Yeah, Revelation 21. Revelation chapter 21. If you are a believer in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sin, if you were called before the very foundations of the earth, this is your eternity. Okay, this is what your eternity will look like. This is what your creator says about your eternity. What your life will look like ages upon ages. Verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this now. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Look at down at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit of, to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, as transparent city. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates and the 12 gates, at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates and on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,300 miles. Okay, 1,300 miles. Its, its length and its width and its height are equal. So that means it's 1,300 miles on all sides. It means it's a 2 million square foot cube here. He also measures its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So this, he's saying this wall is about 200 feet thick. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like glass, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoface, uh, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, 
and the twelve gates were twelve, and, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Okay, gigantic pearls. This is, this gate is a pearl. Each of the gate made up a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for the, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You've got this transparent city, this transparent cube city with these thick walls, but everything's transparent, which means the, the glory of the Lord radiates through all this transparent material, and it's just one big light. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp of, uh, they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. You know what there's a lot of in the book of Revelation? Likes. Likes. It's radiant like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, like clear glass, like transparent glass. John says like so much because he's unable to accurately describe in human terms the glories of, the, of life and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. He does a much better job, again, explaining what he's very familiar with, okay? Namely, the things that will be no more. Do you want to know what else is so glorious about being in glory? The no mores in verse, in verse 4. The yearning to be with our Lord is only intensified when we realize what will be no more. The truth is, all we know, all we've ever known, is how to live our lives in an environment of corruption and cursed and sin and death. That's all we've, we've ever known is an environment marred by sin. We, we've all only lived our life in a world full of pain and sorrow and suffering, full of tears of losing our loved ones, the tears of relationships marred by sin, but, but now there will be no more crying. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. Can you even imagine it? It's hard to even imagine life without these things or the things that cause them, right? There will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more grieving. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more depression. No more despair. There will be no more disappointments or failures. There will be no more loneliness, no more fear. There will be no more anxiety. There will be no more psychologists or psychiatrists. There will be no more mental health facilities. There will be no more hospital visits. There will be no more visits to the nursing home. There will be no more clinics. No more specialists. There will be no more doctor's appointments. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more pharmacies or prescription pickups or vaccinations or boosters. There will be no more children's wards. There will be no more sick wards, burn wards, cancer wards. There will be no more rehabilitation centers. 
There will be no more cemeteries or funeral homes. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis. There will be no more neurological conditions. There will be no more aneurysms. There will be no more seizures. There will be no more lung conditions, no more diabetes, no more high blood pressure. There will be no more broken bones. There will be no more limping. There will be no more speech impediments, no more backaches, no more deformities. There will be no more tumors or detached retinas, or lesions, or spots on x-rays. There will be no more failing livers and kidneys. There will be no more pacemakers or blood thinners, no more miscarriages, no more abortions. There will be no more breakups. There will be no more separations. There will be no more divorce. There will be no more adultery, no more pornography. There will be no more shootings, no more stabbings. There will be no more muggings. There will be no more sex assault. There will be no more rape. No more children being abused or children being negatively influenced on social media. There will, there will be no more spouses being uh, abused physically or verbally. There will be no more torture. There will be no more kidnappings. There will be no more murder. There will be no more hurting of one another. There will no be, more, be no more backbiting. There will be no more gossip. There will be no more slander. There will be no more biting and devouring of one another even in the church. There will be no more insecurities. There will be no more comparing ourselves to one another. There will be no more bullying. There will be no more protests. There will be no more racism. There will be no more harassment. There will be no more temptation. No more deception, no more manipulation, no more corrupt, brutal, and oppressive government officials and judges. There will be no more persecution. There will be no more death. Death has been defeated. It's been cast into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. New. Do you long for this time, my brothers and sisters? Do you long for that time when all things will be made new, not restored, but recreated? Do you long for a time when you will be freed from this prison of these broken bodies? Do you long for the, to be freed from the confines of this corrupt and fleeting world and the things of this world? Do you long for a time when your heart and soul will be made pure and will be no longer susceptible to temptation, no longer vulnerable to sin which corrupts us and would even condemn us if it weren't for God's amazing grace? Do you long for this time? Do you long for this time when all things will be made new? Well, that's the hope of the believer, and it's a hope that will come to pass. This is not some dream or some wish. It's a reality for those who belong to him. And of that, we can be confident. I want to close with a quote here from Matthew Henry. He expressed this confidence in words he hoped would be read after his death by anyone who might unduly mourn his passing. He says, don't mourn for me if I die. (laughs) He said, would you like to know where I am? I am at home in my father's house and the mansions prepared for me here. I'm where I want to be. No longer on the stormy sea, but in God's safe, quiet harbor. My sowing time is done and I am reaping. My joy is the joy of harvest. Would you like to know what I'm doing? I see God, not as through a glass uh, darkly, but face to face. I am engaged in the sweet enjoyment of my precious Redeemer. I am singing hallelujahs to him who sits upon the throne. I am constantly praising him. Do you, would you like to know who, what blessed company I keep? It is better than the best on earth. Here are the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. I am with many of my old acquaintances with whom I worked and prayed and who have come here before me. Lastly, would you like to know how long this will continue? It is a dawn that never fades. 
After millions and millions of ages, it will be as fresh as it is now. Therefore, weep not for me. Something we can all look forward to. Amen? Amen. Pray with me now, and then Noel will come up to lead us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we do joyously anticipate that moment when we are with our Lord. Like Paul, we long for it. We desire to depart and to be with you, but Lord, we recognize you have called us to share this good news with others, to share the good news of reconciliation to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So use us as you see fit, however you can bring glory to yourself, and then Lord, uh, bring us home. And we long for that moment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.